Welcome to Smart Talk. I'm Scott Lamar. More than 80,000 Pennsylvanians are living in nursing homes. Many are frail and have been diagnosed with an illness or medical condition that requires nursing care. In a recent audit, Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene DePasquale found several deficiencies that could impact the quality of care nursing home residents are receiving. Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene DePasquale joins us this morning. General, welcome to the program. Thanks, Scott. Good morning. Let me tell our listeners at home that if you have a question or a comment, uh, many of us, many of our families have a loved one living in a nursing home. So this is of interest to so many people out there. Give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. All right, let's start with the broad question, General. Uh, What were the major findings of your audit? There's probably, I would think, two main findings. One was we found that there's a requirement in Pennsylvania that there needs to be 2.7 hours per day of skilled care to every nursing home patient. Whether a nursing home was doing it or not, the Department of Health, which is responsible for overseeing this, was doing absolutely zero tracking of this for the last several years. So you could have homes doing this, you could have homes not doing it, but the Department of Health was simply not tracking it, which is literally mind-boggling. Um, the second issue that we that we had the biggest issue with was that in 2012, literally out of nowhere with no public comment, the um, ability for families and nursing home workers, or literally anyone, but it would impact those two groups the most, of issuing anonymous complaints to the Department of Health was eliminated. And so those are the two biggest that we found, you know, we had many findings um, dealing with how the certification and the regulatory process, but when it came to the direct impact of how, you know, people's daily lives um, in the nursing homes, those are the two biggest issues we saw. And I, I want to clarify with the staffing issue to begin with, as you just described, but I want to make sure we're clear on this. This does not necessarily mean that facilities across the state were understaffed. It just means that the Department of Health did not review them. So there is the, the potential, maybe the great potential, for understaffing. That's correct. Uh, so, te- you know, people say, well, why didn't you, you know, and I'm just, you know, for people that are tuned, don't know how the, the audit works. Well, why didn't you audit the nursing home? We actually don't have the jurisdiction to do that. What we did was we have the jurisdiction to audit the Department of Health oversight. So you could have a situation statistically very unlikely where every home is understaffed or every home is appropriately staffed. The statistical likelihood of that, considering the Department of Health wasn't doing the job, is highly unlikely. But there are, I'm sure, and I know this, many nursing homes that are appropriately staffed. And, you know, just statistically speaking, I know that there's many that are understaffed. What we were looking at was the Department of Health's oversight of that. And the reason why they are supposed to track it is they are supposed to be making sure these nursing homes are doing their job and and they weren't doing that. And the big question is why? And uh, it's hard for me to get into people's intent. Um, we just know that they weren't doing it, and, and they conceded during the audit that they weren't doing it, and they've pledged to fix it. Um, you can look at several things you know, as possibilities. One is they just didn't have the, the personnel to do it. You have about 160 people in that operation for across the state, and we've seen this with other state agencies where they get to the point where they're, and I don't mean it to sound crude, but where they're merely pushing paper, checking boxes. They have to do certain things to draw down federal money 
And I think a lot of this becomes, well, if we do this, it doesn't equal more money for the state. If we do this, it does equal more money for the state from the Fed. So let's keep doing this. I think that's there's a good possibility that's it. You know, I don't and we found no evidence where there was some secret strategy of trying to hurt seniors by not checking this. We just simply, you know, you know, know they weren't doing it. Now, when you say that uh, the requirement is for 2.7 hours per day, how was that measured? Well, it, it, for, for, let me also pull back a little bit on this and let people know. We are talking about skilled care here. We're not that's, talking about— That's my about, next question, yeah. yeah. Yeah, we're talking about people that are there helping with feeding tubes. This is stuff where you have to be a skilled nurse to do. We're not somebody—that 2.7 hours is not including somebody bringing you, you know, your milk or your lunch. We're talking about skilled care here. So that's that's what the important distinction to, to, to note here. So, But how is that 2.7 hours of skilled care measured? Um, it would be literally uh, the Department of Health going and looking at the logs of the staff um, that, that, um, that that nursing home maintains. So you would look at, you know, um, nurse A, B, and C, and you would go over their logs because, you know, during each day people are supposed to be logging their day as to what they're doing and not doing. And that log is not just about helping the Department of Health. It's also about the main important part of that log is um, helping them know that they're administering the proper care to the patient. Our guest is Pennsylvania's Auditor General, Eugene D. Pasquale. We're talking about a recent audit of Pennsylvania's nursing homes and the Department of Health working with those nursing homes. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532, or send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. General, did you find instances when a resident was hurt or didn't get the care that they needed because of understaffing? We did find a couple instances of those, yes. Um, and for privacy reasons, we will not reveal individuals' names. But yes, we did. We did find in, in instances um, where that did take place. Yes. Okay, so I'm not looking for names or anything, but yeah. I mean, can you give a general description of what happened? Uh, where people didn't get proper, they, were, they had become dehydrated, um, uh, malnourished. Uh, once it led to death. Um, once where somebody uh, fell down a stairs, a uh, flight of stairs, where they were known to be wandering to begin with. Um, those are those are three examples uh, that, that we found. When you say one case led to death, in what way? Um, they were malnourished, dehydration led to hospitalization, and eventually led to death. How can that happen? It, uh, it, it's mind-boggling. It's literally mind-boggling. Um, and that goes back to um, not... There's part of it where you say, how does that happen? Okay, if you're not properly logging what you're doing and keeping track of what you're doing, forgetting the Department of Health for a second, just that individual nursing home not doing what they should be doing on keeping their proper records, then that's that's what happens. Mm. Just an observation, uh, you know, nursing homes that I've visited where there's a relative or friend, uh, they do seem to be understaffed, especially on weekends and holidays. Uh, part of the issue, and, you know, I don't know how much you can get into with this, but part of the issue is that many of these workers aren't paid very much, yeah. and there seems to be a fairly high turnover rate. Now, it may be different with the skilled care, registered nurses, right. but when it comes to the nurses' aides and a lot of the people who are uh, you know, tending to the patients uh, more than those 2.7 hours per day, there seems to be a high turnover, and again, pay is part of the issue. Right. 
I, I think there's no question about that. Now, uh, let me take a step back and also talk about th- this stuff does not happen in a vacuum. Um, even the nursing homes that are that are doing the best they can, you know, uh, full of integrity, wh- whatever terms you want to use. There are reimbursement issues from the federal government. There's Medicaid costs. There, there, so there's a huge cost issue there um, that that has not been adjusted at the federal level in many years. So that's part of it. Two, we are talking about work that is very challenging. Um, you know, this is not going to the desk with a, with a shirt and tie or, or, or a nice outfit. I mean, this is, this is hard physical labor. And then you combine that with, yes, the pay in many instances is not very good. And so when someone is looking at options where they can, you know, get a, a job that may be physically less demanding for more pay, it's really hard to tell someone not to take that opportunity. So you have to look at, I think, all three of those issues. I, you know, I did take, I was in many nursing homes across the state as part of the, as part of the audit, you know, just visiting. And every nursing home to a person, regardless of their location, regardless of their rating from the state, regarding, regardless of what um, the patients or the families thought about the quality of that individual nursing home, they all, the professional staff all said it is very hard for them to retain staff at the pay level. Any idea what they make? I mean, on an on average, um, it w- it will go anywhere from you know eight to nine to uh, eleven to twelve, depending on the nursing home per hour. Uh, and I'm talking about do- dollars per hour. That's right, correct. right, right. You know, and I've I've heard many people say this, and I would tend to agree. It takes a special kind of person to work in a nursing home because you're right. It's not just the the physical part of it. But also the mental part of it. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it is it is a difficult job to do. Yeah, look, um, you and I—I I, I don't mean to speak ill. I, I've never done the job. I've been there. I've seen it. I, I don't know. Maybe you have. No, I'm I assuming haven't. you haven't either. Yeah. No. I mean, you, we go in when we're either visiting a loved one or me as part of my job on the tour. Um, I've done both. It is. We're going in there and seeing. We're not seeing the the family member that is critical of the care, even if someone is trying to do their best, and and sort of how that can take a toll on you. Um, you know, we have many patients have mental challenges that that can wear on people, um, and when you're combining that with pay that is not very high, um, someone gets another job opportunity. They say, look, I can go here. Uh, you know make uh, a buck an hour more and not have to deal with this. It's, you know, so we have to address this as a state and probably as a society is how do we address this so that we keep the, the people that want to do the job but make it so that they want to stick with it for the long haul. It, but it, it is not easy, an easy job. Hmm. Let's take a phone call from Gary in Juniana County. Gary, you're on the air. Yeah, if you have a chance, I would love to give my name um, to general off the air uh, because my wife was in charge of a nursing home for six years. Uh, she's an RN with her bachelor's degree. She's got all kinds of certifications. And the things that they ask the RNs even to do as far as taking, you know, phone calls from people calling in sick. Now, you got to remember, uh, everybody thinks everybody sleeps all night in a nursing home, and that does not happen. They can't even put bed rails up because that's an infringement on, you know, patients' rights. Um, so, you know, you find people on the floor. Um, you know, you got to try to get them back in bed. Uh, my wife weighs about 120 pounds. It's not easy when you have a two or 300 pound patient. Um, she had to check freezer temperatures. She had to go around and check shower water temperatures, as well as trying to take care of 80 people with one LPN 
and a couple of nurse tech techs or whatever they call the CNNs. And, you know, it's almost, it's not just the bodies in the place, it's the description of the work. It's the state thinks all these other things are getting done when the nursing homes, you know, maintenance or, or whatever the parts are, are trying to get different jobs that have nothing to do with patient care out of these same people and it just stretches them way too thin. So I'm sorry for the crackly phone. I'll get off the air. Yeah. <laughs> like I said, if it's possible, um, I don't know who to email to, but she has a list of things that, you know, you just wouldn't believe about, you know, taking medications and, and different things that, you know, <laughs> happen. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, Gary, one of the things we're going to talk about a little bit later in the program is something that uh, the Auditor General mentioned very early on about anonymous uh, complaints, and uh, maybe that's the way to go about it. All right. Thank you very much for your call. And we will talk about that. But the point he makes, General uh, DePasquale, what about that? The staff being asked to do more than just tending to patients. Uh, There is no question in my mind, and this was, again, not part of the audit, but part of the audit. And I'll explain what I mean by this. To me, just knowing what I know, it would be impossible to come up with a scenario where this doesn't take place. They don't have enough staff. The staff they do have just it gets asked to do things that they may not be qualified or trained to do and because there's simply just not enough people on call at that specific hour. The reason why I say that, that I, I, that's not necessary part of the audit is, again, we were auditing the Department of Health oversight, and the Department of Health can, could not verify whether that was taking place or not, even though it was their requirement to do that. And that's where you know, the Department of Health has pledged moving forward to be able to do that. But what he outlines, what Gary outlines, is a very real scenario, which is you have uh, uh, people on call, um, there's not enough people there, things happen that are unexpected, so you're asking someone to then do something that they're not trained to do. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Our guest during this portion of the program is Pennsylvania's Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale. We're talking about a recent audit of nursing homes in Pennsylvania. Actually, it was the Department of Health's relationship and uh, what the Department of Health was doing with nursing homes across the state. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. Send an email to smarttalk at witf.org. You also can leave a question or comment on WITF's Facebook page. Again, that phone number is 1-800-729-7532. General, you know, people listening to this would say, well, the answer to the question then would just seem to be to pay these nursing home facilities, to pay their workers more, stop the turnover, and all those things. Well, the reality is, is that it is very, very expensive. I mean, people paying Five, six, seven thousand, ten thousand dollars a month for uh, uh, each, each each resident, and you you up those, you increase those salaries. It adds to that high cost. Absolutely, this is where, broadly speaking, from a policy as a federal and state government, as really as the people of the country, we have to decide how big of a priority this is. And I know people will sit down and say, "Well, it should be the highest priority." Uh, you know, I would agree with that, but if if we're going to do then it's going to impact the Medicare and Medicaid costs because I do believe that broadly speaking we have to find a way to pay the people working in the nursing homes more but there's a cost to that and and you got to pay for that and not everyone 
is in a financial position where they're paying that out of the insurance or out of pocket. That's a very small segment of the people that are in nursing homes. It certainly does happen. Um, and, and But for, for the ones that not, it's going to be an impact on the Medicaid and Medicare budgets. But I do think that that is a way to begin to tackle this problem. Hmm. Uh, so if a family or someone is looking for a nursing home, they're uh, looking to choose a nursing home uh, for a loved one to go into. Uh, when it comes to staffing, are there questions that a family should ask? Um, yes, they can ask about the 2.7 hours. I mean, again, you know, I, I don't know how many people are going to walk in with that 2.7 hour requirement. But yes, you can ask about what, what type of direct care do they offer? What is the licensing? Who, do they have a trained professional staff to deal with that? At night, when it is a quote-unquote downtime, you know, is the staffing level still there in case something happens? Also, the Department of Health has pledged, and, and we believe and we know that they are beginning to try to change this, to make their website more accessible with information so that you can do research on each nursing home via the Department of Health website so you can see which ones have various ratings of quality and also which ones have passed their, their hourly requirement inspections. And by the way, uh, I saw in the release that uh, that your office put out, there was a link to nursing home locator in Pennsylvania from the Department of Health. And I put a link on our website, WITF.org, for that. But something that I noticed and you pointed out in the release is that the information on that website is supplied by the nursing homes themselves. Now, you know, not that we're accusing nursing homes of being dishonest, but that doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Um, That is correct. And we do think that there needs to be more of an independent verification from the department before that gets put on there. Mm. All right. So let's take another phone call from Jane before we get into the anonymous complaints. Jane is in Gettysburg. Jane, you're on the air. Hi. um, Thank you for taking my call. Um, About seven years ago, I was receiving training as a nursing home inspector. I'm a registered nurse. And one of the homes that um, we were inspecting, my job was to meet with resident council group. And their big complaint was that for 3 to 11, they didn't, the nursing home didn't seem to have enough staff. Um, after dinner, the residents would need to go to the bathroom. They would become incontinent due to the fact that there, nobody took them to the bathroom. And if they did get to the bathroom, they were they sat for about 45 minutes before someone got them off the toilet and out of the bathroom. So I brought this back to our group, and I said, I believe we need to come in during a 3-11 shift and observe this. And the head of the um, inspecting group said, she looked at a piece of paper, she said, the numbers the numbers are fine here. And I said, they lie. They, they're including the nursing supervisor. They're including the charge nurse, the RNs, the LPNs. None of them get people on and off the toilet. But hmm. they didn't want to do the 3 to 11 um, inspection. And the other thing I'd like to say is the regulations that come down from the federal government, they're written by nurses that are master degree, I don't know, maybe even doctorate degrees. They've never worked in a nursing home. They've never gotten their hands dirty. They have no idea what it takes to take care of these elderly people. Um, CNAs, they, they get 10 patients to take care of. That's, ridi- that's a ridiculous amount. If they're all dependent for getting um, changed, if they can't do anything for themselves, 10 people is a lot. 
Mm. Hey, I'm glad you called in, Linda. Or excuse me, Jane. Thank you very much, uh, General. That's the kind of story you hate to hear. Yeah, hate to hear, um, but but also not shocked to hear. And um, you know, like I had a brother with muscular dystrophy, so he was not in the nursing home. He had direct home care. Um, and when he got to be 18, 19, 20 years old, um, and obviously he's at that point getting bigger and heavier. Uh, the the physical effort um, when you know when I wasn't able to be there to help or, you know for my mom was was just too much. I mean she just physically couldn't do it. So somebody came to the home to help. The the physical work of carrying him, putting him on the toilet, getting him off, helping him get dressed, just that alone is physically grueling. Um, when you're talking about you know an 18, 19 year old young man with muscular dystrophy who can literally do nothing to help you. Like when he puts his arms around you, it, it, it's literally meaningless other than balance because he's not able to even grip the neck or the back when, when you're picking him up. You know, in a nursing home, it's not the same thing as muscular dystrophy, but it's not much different. Well, the, the other point that she made, though, is uh, no one wanting to work or few people wanting to work the, those three to 11 hours. Yeah. That's... Oh, well, the, the, yeah, the, the human toll on that. Yeah, it's, look, people have families, right? I mean, they have families, you know, kids, et cetera. That's, that's obviously a shift that people want to avoid, um, whether it be a factory, a nursing home, or almost probably any walk of life. And so, yeah, you, you, have a, you have a major challenge getting people to even want to work that shift. So if you're not tracking um, what the actual workload is, it's pretty easy to, you know, the, the, the Department of Health, if they're not tracking it, pretty easy for nursing them to get away with not having the proper staffing level. Mm. I want to switch over, make a transition to what you also found about anonymous complaints. But I'm going to let a, one of our callers ask that question. Uh, Nancy is in Lancaster. Nancy, you're on the air. That's right. Um, I find it um, very odd and suspicious that anonymous tips are not allowed. So can you tell me how that can possibly be justified? All right. Thank you very much. Let me provide a little bit of background here. Uh, this is something that you found that stopped in 2012 during the Corbett administration. And no one seems to know. I mean, our uh, one of our reporters checked with a former secretary of health and said, we don't know when that started. We don't know who gave the order of that the Department of Health stopped taking anonymous complaints. How'd that happen? We don't know how it happened, but we know it did happen, and it was in 2012, and as a result of our audit and, and the, the, uh, Dr. Murphy, as the new Secretary of Health, began immediately to allow the anonymous complaints to restart again. To me, there is no logical reason why you know, the Ridge administration, the Rendell administration, and the first year of the Corbett administration allowed anonymous complaints. Now, without any public discussion, without any public notice, they just went away. I, I, I mean, look, I, I don't want to get into motive here because I can't, but, you know, certainly I have a gut, but I, I, I can't prove anything. But all I do know is they went away and there was no public discussion that they were going away. And to ask someone who has, um, who is making, you know, say $25,000, dollars $35,000 a year, Maybe has a kid at home, um, and that's their way of paying the bills. To ask them to put their name on a complaint when it could easily lead to them losing their job is beyond ridiculous. Um, that uh, to say that I was outraged to find that would be an understatement. Um, there is 
in my opinion, no logical or good policy reason why that would have happened and why it went away in 2012, I can't prove. I do know Dr. Murphy allowed it to start again immediately. Um, and again, we're not talking about something that was a partisan issue here. You know, Governor Ridge and Governor Rendell both had anonymous complaints. So this is not something that, and, and the thing that is the most mind-boggling about it is no one knew it happened, meaning you just all of a sudden, if it was an anonymous complaint, it just got dropped. Well, how did, okay, you said you had a gut feeling. You want to share that gut feeling with me? Well, the gut feeling is it was, a, it, it was a somebody trying to do a favor for a nursing home. I mean, that's my gut feeling. What do you mean doing a favor for a nursing home? It's, so, hey, look, if, they, if, if, we got a, if we have a nursing home that's you know, getting anonymous complaints, um, hey, we just get rid of that, and then all of a sudden their rating goes better. Mm. So you're saying Because what happens if the anonymous complaint goes away, the score of the nursing home gets better. So just so I can picture this, if an anonymous complaint came in, it was just ignored? It just it, it didn't count as a complaint. Not even ignored. It didn't count. What did it count as? Nothing. It just went away. But, I mean, were these things ever investigated, these anonymous no, complaints? No, they, they were not investigated. So you could have people's lives in danger and they weren't being investigated? If it was in if it was an anonymous complaint starting in 2012, it did not get investigated. Have you found anything since that uh, maybe was uh, well? I guess if, if it wasn't if it wasn't uh, documented, we, you, right. we don't know about it. That's right. The, the scary part about this is it may have been totally harmless, meaning what the result was, or it could have led to many catastrophes. Literally, can't tell you because if it was anonymous, it simply went away, and. I, I think it's one of the most outrageous things I've found since I've been Auditor General, but um, but that's that's what happened. General, am I going too far overstating this to say that almost sounds criminal? Um, it's a good question. It certainly was against every regulatory practice of the Department of Health, at a minimum. I'll leave it at that. All right, let's, uh, and by the way, I, I did mention that one of our reporters contacted former Secretary of Health and said was not aware of it and did not know how it occurred, when that order came down, how it came down. Let's take a... a uh, by the way, by the way, that, and I'm not saying the former Secretary is lying, because I, I mean, that, that could very well be an honest statement, because no one gave us an answer on this. So, I, I mean, so that could very well be an honest statement. But if that did happen, where the former Secretary didn't know it happened, how in God's name, could a rogue employee, if that's what happened, simply do that without the secretary even knowing it? Hmm. Let's take a phone call now from uh, Norman in Lancaster. Norman, you're on the air. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, wanted you, your guest had talked about the issue of low pay at nursing homes, uh, a lack of staffing, and all that kind of stuff. Um, does your guest know whether with the new duties that the Department of Health are now going to be doing, which they were supposed to be doing in the past, uh, do we have an issue of low pay and not enough staff at Department of Health to do the job that he wants them to do? I'll take a response off the air. Thank you. Uh -huh. Thank you. Uh, yes. Uh, the, yeah, there is a concern about whether it was before, during, and after the audit, or whether the Department of Health had sufficient staff. 
Uh, Dr. Murphy did say in the recent budget that they had a 7% increase um, in this specific area. We're hopeful that that can begin to address the shortage that they had. Um, but there's no question that um, staffing shortage at the Department of Health played at least some role in this. You know, I, I can't help thinking that, uh, and I'm not just talking about the Department of Health, but state government overall, that, uh, you know, many governors— and on both sides of the aisle, I remember Governor Rendell doing it, Governor Corbett doing it, maybe even Governor Ridge, uh, talking about uh, the number of state employees we had and how the state workforce was was smaller than before. And the idea, of course, is that uh, you're saving taxpayers' money. But at the same time, when it comes to some of these uh, these jobs that are being done that are life and death matters, there comes a time when you need people to do it. Well, here's here's uh, two things on this. One, nobody's ever won an election for governor on the idea of I'm going to hire more state government <laughs> That's employees. Right. That's I mean, right. it, I, I, you, and I, I mean that it, it is it is not tongue in cheek, although at some level comical. But I guarantee you, put that in a poll question, that's not going to be like, hey, there's my guy, like that's. That's not the winning message to an elected governor. So when Having you so, we, that, so when you run for governor, you're not going to say that. <laughs> well, here's the conversation we need to have. And it is a real conversation is what are our priorities and whatever those priorities are. And I would think taking care of seniors, I would think, you know, public education, teachers, et cetera. You go through the list of what are the priorities. If you don't have the necessary staff to do it, regardless of what you say in your campaign commercial, you're not able to fulfill it. And this is one area. And we've also seen this. And we had, I think you had on me, had me on before to talk about the Department of Education. They don't have enough staff there. To follow through with all their requirements. So to me, you have two choices. The legislature and the governor is part of this discussion of two choices, either reduce the requirements that they have to do or get on the staff to fulfill the requirements. Uh, there, to me, is not a middle ground on that. Well, NDP is another example. I mean, we, uh, the, the, you know, Marcella Shale has become a huge industry in this state and we don't have enough inspectors. There was no, it, it, that was you know one of my earlier audits. Um, right. That's exactly right. If you if protecting the water is a critically important issue, which I would believe you do, then you have to have the necessary staff to do it. Now that's an area where if they had had a thoughtful approach from day one on the Marcellus Shell drilling to have the appropriate you know appropriate fee structure, so that you in a sense using that as a user fee. Um, to pay for the inspectors to go out and do that, that probably would have been a much better way to go. Uh, so we're getting off track a little bit, but uh, yeah. it, 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 no, it's part of the issue. Uh, yeah. th another part of uh, your audit had to do with sanctions. During a 22-month period, right. almost 9,200 federal deficiencies were found and fines were handed out to Pennsylvania nursing homes uh, of $2 million. That money paid to the federal government. At the same right. time, only 47 state sanctions compared to 9,200. 47 state sanctions totaling $172,000. How does that happen? It happens, I think, really three ways. Number one is it's pretty clear to me just looking at it that the Department of Health over the period of our audit and what the records we fought, saw, they were more focused on the federal issues because that's what drew down the federal money. So there was a higher priority on that. And on the state issues, we think that, you know, that for the most part, they were just pushing papers and checking boxes. So that's part of it. Uh, number two... I am I, what I've said, you know, on the fine issue is I'm fascinated with how they got the ones that they did find because we saw no evidence that they were doing this broad search. 
So, boy, the ones that they did find must have been horrible. And, and to have fines that small for, for that, I, I mean, is mind-boggling. Third issue, though, and I think what is more important, the fines are there as a final tool for very bad actors. What is much more important, in my opinion, is doing the work up front to get compliance so that you don't have to issue the fines. And if the department does a better job on compliance, then I think the fine issue will take care of itself. Let's take another phone call from Eric in York. Eric, you're on the air. Hi, uh, thanks for taking my call. Um, This is a uh, subject that's near and dear to my heart. Um, I've worked um, with the elderly um, in a uh, county agency for a short while and also um, in and out of um, nursing homes in the York County area. Um, um, I'm also a parent of a five-year-old child, and it's just interesting to me that there's requirements for supervision of young people under the age of 18, and it changes as they get older, as they're more responsible for their selves and their bodily functions and things like that. But there doesn't seem to be any kind of a correlation with the elderly, and and this is what I'm talking about. Um, We're talking about 10 CNAs in charge of, uh, I mean, one CNA in charge of 10 um, elderly people uh, after mealtime, um, and I know from being in the um, in facilities that they need to go to the bathroom. They're human beings. They have to go after they eat. And um, uh, that requirement for young child, let's say like two years old, uh, is definitely more than one to ten. And I'm just interested in uh, the rationale for that ratio. And um, I'll take the answer off the air. Thank All you right. very much. All right. Thank you for, uh, for your call, uh, Eric. Uh, you know, he, he's making a, a point, and it's kind of uh, uh, follows what you had said, General, is that what our priorities are as a society. That's right. Um, Now, when it comes to the specific policies, that is up to the Department of Health. We make recommendations. One of the things we recommended was that they have a wholesale review of all of their policies and procedures on this to make sure they're more in line with national standards. So that was our main recommendation. For example, we talked about earlier in the show the 2.7-hour requirement. Actually, what is considered the national standard or the national goal is 4.1 hours. Now, I'm not saying that they should require 4.1, but when the national study shows 4.1 is the, is, the, is the gold standard of specialized care every day for, from in a nursing home, and we're not even making sure that we're making the 2.7-hour requirement, that's concerning. Um, but there should be a wholesale revision, and Dr. Murphy, I believe, and we know this from just our discussions, is beginning that wholesale review. But there's no question that at the end of the day, is you just have to ask, what's your priority? You know, all of us, like you have a certain amount of money that you make salary-wise, family-wise. What are your priorities? Uh, you know, is it putting some money in college, mortgage, food, whatever? I mean, we all have to make priorities in our life um, to where we put our, our most resources, time, financial, et cetera. The same thing when it comes to state government. What are the priorities? Now, I, I have yet to find anyone that doesn't think making sure that our most frail in our, in our nursing homes isn't of the highest priority. Mm. Pennsylvania Auditor General Eugene D. Pasquale, thank you very much. Very interesting, uh, your, your findings here. And I, there's something else coming up with nursing homes you have soon, isn't there? Um, I, um, maybe I do. I, I'm not aware of anything on the nursing home front that is new. Um, we certainly have... 
um, some audits coming out regarding some charter schools that is of interest. Uh, the one that is uh, has the most interest right now is we scheduled it in about mid-September is our finalized audit of the Turnpike Commission. Okay, and we'll take a look at that, too. Thank you very much for being with us, today. Hey, thanks, Scott. Have a good week. You too. You're listening to Smart Talk on WITF, your home for NPR News and all things regional. I'm Scott Lamar. Computers don't make mistakes, or do they? It may sound counterintuitive, but a Franklin and Marshall College study is looking into whether computers can learn from mistakes, kind of trial and error. Our guest is Professor Eric Talvit. Now, let me make sure I'm part of Talvity, right? That's right. All right. Uh, Eric Talvity, Associate Professor of Computer Science at FNM. Uh, Professor Talvity, thank you very much for joining us today. Oh, thanks. Uh, it's great to be here. If you have a question or a comment, give us a call, 1-800-729-7532. And I, I use the word counterintuitive, and I have to give credit uh, because your communications person's here. I take took that directly from your uh, news release, Pete. So, you know, counterintuitive is a good word. Computers don't make mistakes unless there's an issue with how the computer was programmed. Am I accurate in that, or? No, I, I wouldn't say that, actually. Really? Okay. <laughs> I, I know a lot of people who have trouble, who have uh, found a mistake on a bill they have to pay or something, saying, oh, the computer made a mistake. Well, what about that? Sure. So I, I guess the problem that this project is about, and, and it's part of a larger field uh, of computer science called machine learning, the idea is for the uh, program to learn from its own experience to do better and better at whatever task it's trying to do, uh, which means that it has to make mistakes, just like any person learning to do a new task. You have to try things out that you haven't tried before, see how it works out. Sometimes it's not going to work out well. You might call that a mistake, if you will. But uh, the idea is that over time, with experience, uh, the program will, will sort of you know, we'll learn to to make better decisions over time. So what's the idea behind this? Uh, what's the idea behind this? Uh, the Can you clarify the question? Well, meaning why do it? Why uh, do this experiment? Why do this research? What oh, you, sure. What are you looking to do? Well, so, I mean, long range, I would say the, the field is not here yet, but long range, the vision would be that uh, sort of anywhere where computers are used to, to help with automated decision-making could be impacted by, uh, positively impacted by computers that can learn uh, to do better over time. So if you think about uh, driverless cars, which are coming on the horizon, uh, you can think about digital personal assistants like Siri or Cortana or whoever in your phone. Um, you know, these are applications where you're currently using software to help make decisions and the software is deciding you know how to move the car or what to display to you or what you know how to, to interact with you uh, if those programs could learn more about the specifics of what they're trying to do learn more about what you need from your phone you know when to interrupt you what you need to hear about what emails you're going to ignore or you know uh, how to drive in central pennsylvania it's like okay at a left at a if i'm trying to turn left at a red light actually somebody might let me go before they go straight that kind of thing um so that is you know any any place where computers are being used to make decisions could be positively impacted by uh, the ability to uh, adapt 
Well, the driverless car was, the, 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 I thought, a good example because, I mean, obviously they're not on the road yet. They're still in the experimentation uh, stage. But, you know, when I, when I thought about that, I was like, okay, haven't, that, haven't they been perfected yet? I mean, <laughs> is this something that you can improve upon that? I th- so, you know, the current driverless car technology that people are experimenting with, I, I would say, does little or no learning while operating, and that's probably a good thing. Um, you don't want your car saying, like, oh, what if I try this? And, <laughs> <doing something. laughs> and go out on its own, go rogue. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, uh, but still, certainly you can imagine... Uh, a lot of engineering work goes into designing driverless cars, and you can certainly imagine that in different areas, uh, you might need different behaviors from the car. If it's a car in the mountains or a car, uh, you know, in the middle of Oklahoma, it's going to have to have different driving behaviors. And then we've also seen that with Google has reported that their car, you know, most of the accidents that it's been in have only been because the car is driving more safely than humans do so it usually drives more conservatively uh, and then other human drivers get confused by how conservatively it's driving and they rear end it that's the usual (laughs) (laughs) i had never heard that's the usual scenario and so again there's sort of a, a driver culture issue that you could imagine might be mitigated if you if you could adapt the program through experience with a specific region yeah they better not use them in florida is all i have to say um all right, so let's talk about the research itself. What is it's you and a, a couple of other students? Uh, what are what are you doing? What's the research itself specifically? So the problem we're working on is actually much much smaller than those long range mm-hmm. goals. Um, we're actually trying to create a program that can learn to play Atari twenty six hundred games. Um, so you may remember the Atari twenty six hundred from oh, the seventies, yeah. very popular video game console. So the the idea of the problem is, uh, so historically in AI, lots of challenge problems have been about making a program that is really good at one thing. AI. Uh, Sorry, artificial intelligence. Okay. So if you think about um, when Kasparov, when Deep Blue beat Kasparov at chess, um, you know, that was a big moment, but we, that program that could beat Kasparov at chess couldn't make a sandwich or drive a car or prove a theorem or write a poem or or anything else that, I mean, a human could do all of those things in one day. Uh, And so the idea of the Atari problem is there are a lot of games out there and we're trying to make one program that you could put into any unknown, any, just pick a random unknown game and have it learn to do well. So the hope is to end up with uh, programs that are, instead of being really good at one thing, that are pretty good at lots of things. Mm. I have to admit that uh, when I did see uh, Atari 2600, I thought I had misread it uh, <laughs> because it was going, but why, why, why choose that one? Uh, so there are lots of reasons. One is that there are, first of all, because there are lots of games and there are a lot, uh, they are qualitatively different from each other. You know, some of them are shooting games or puzzle games or navigation games. Um, there are even um, first-person shooter games from the Atari 26 all the way back in the 70s. There's, there are games like that. So, um, you know, there are a lot of different kinds of things that the computer might need to learn to do. That's part of it. 
The other reason is that these are all problems that were designed by humans for humans to solve. So in some ways, they're not... Another way you could get lots of problems is just by randomly creating them. Um, but these all encode biases that humans have. So they have objects that move around on the screen and interactions that humans expect to see uh, in their day-to-day -day life just kind of boiled down into this simplified realm. So how does the computer learn then? Uh, pretty much... It's metaphorically speaking, a lot like a little kid would learn. I mean, so if you are encountering a new Atari game, what would you do? You're asking me? Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. I, I, I do it by trial and error. Okay. So well, you. Well, whatever works. <laughs> so you would start. I'm looking to score more points. Right. So you start jiggling the joystick and pressing the button. And the first thing you do is you start to watch the screen and see what happens when you do those things. Right. And after a little while, you start to be able to. Uh, make predictions about what's going to change on the screen based on the decisions that you make. And then based on those predictions, you start to be able to make better decisions. You say, oh, you know, I got points that time because, you know, the ball hit a, one of those bricks and therefore I need to try to make the ball hit the brick more. Um, it's the same idea here. So the the program has access to a virtual joystick. It sees virtual screens from the Atari, and it jiggles the joystick and tries to figure out what will change on the screen based on what, uh, how it moves the joystick. And then based on those predictions, it tries to m make decisions that re will result in points. Mm -hmm. Now, just a basic thing. This, it, it has to be programmed that the computer understands that 10 is more than 5, right? Yes. So the program, you know, at the beginning, it has, it knows about the joystick roughly, you know, it knows that it can have the different, move the joystick in all the different ways you can move the joystick. Um, and it knows about score and it knows that score is good. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but other than that, uh, we don't give it any prior information. So it uh, starts basically fresh, just like a little kid sitting down to play uh, a new game and it from its own uh, experience with the game, it has to learn how the game works. Just out of curiosity, I don't know if you can give a blanket answer to this or a typical answer, but how long or how quickly does it take a computer to learn? Yeah, so there's actually been a lot of progress in this domain and this problem recently. Um, just maybe a year ago or maybe a little over a year ago, uh, Google DeepMind, which is a... Mm -hmm part of Google that, that is focused on artificial intelligence, uh, published a, a pretty big paper where they had made a bunch of progress in the Atari problem. Um, and so, so just for reference, they're, um, they're, they, in each game, they trained their solution for 200 million frames. The Atari ran at about 60 frames per second. So 200 million frames is... Uh, See if I can do the yeah, math. I was going to say, if you're going to do the math this quickly, I'm going to be impressed. <laughs> no, no. So, but anyway, that's 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 several months, right? Of Atari. If you were sitting in front of the TV, this would be like several months of just sitting there playing the game over and over again, mm -hmm. which is way, way more than a than a person typically needs. Um, but then again, that's maybe to be expected because a person comes into these games with a whole lot of lived experience beforehand, right? A person has already played with a ball and bounced it off a wall. And so when they encounter a game 
where it's using on the screen, it's kind of displaying something that's like a ball bouncing off a wall. They can immediately relate that to their experience where the computer program doesn't have that to begin with. It has to learn the whole thing from scratch. Mm. It is very much like you used the, the analogy of a small child. Uh, you know, some, uh, a child sitting down for the first time and, and doing something like that doesn't have a whole lot of uh, life experiences. Our guest during this portion of the program is uh, Eric Talvady, Associate Professor of Computer Science at Franklin and Marshall College, talking about... Uh, teaching computers, actually computers learning from their mistakes, trial and error. And we'll talk about some of the practical applications here in a moment. We only have a few minutes left if you have a question or comment. 1-800-729-7532 is the number to call. You mentioned uh, driverless call, or excuse me, driverless cars and a couple other. But one that um, I found interesting, cognitive prosthetics. Yeah. Talk about that. How could this be used with that? So that's an area. I'm I'm not an expert in this area, but but it's related to the idea of a digital personal assistant. So we have this idea of a program in your phone that would, uh, you know, tell you, oh, you've got an email, or you know, remind you of some of an Something appointment. Something simple. Yeah. Yeah. But um, a, a sort of offshoot of that idea would be that someone who has a cognitive disability might benefit greatly from uh, a piece of technology that could help them, say, keep track of their schedule or remind them to take their medication, or if they become disoriented, help them reorient. Um, you might imagine that such a device could help someone who might now be dependent on on other people to help them get through their day, uh, might be able to be more independent. Um, and so that that's the idea of cognitive orthotics. And, and you can imagine, of course, if, if we're going to succeed in that, it seems very likely that that technology would have to be able to adapt to the individual that it's working with. Because yeah, everyone's different. Yeah. Everyone is different, and there are lots and lots of different forms of cognitive disability and lots and lots of different needs that someone might have. Um, and so you can imagine that the ability to learn from experience and adapt to the needs of the piece of software would be really important in, in achieving that goal. We only have about a minute or so left. I want to thank you very much for being with us today. What do you ultimately hope that uh, your research will, will do? So really the the kind of overall goal here is, for me, is to f make computer programs that are more um, flexible and more adaptable. And I can see lots of different areas, practical areas, where that would impact. Uh, but that's the, the the sort of broad goal is is flexibility and adaptability. Mm -hmm. uh, you've gotten a grant uh, to to help in uh, your your studies as well, right? That's right from the from the National Science Foundation. And how much was that? <laughs> it was about five hundred thousand mm dollars. -hmm. That's uh, that sounds like a lot of money, <laughs> but I mean, is it? I don't know. <laughs> it does sound it, well. I mean, it is obviously a lot of money. Um, so for the, it's it's about. Uh, it's not atypical for that kind of grant. That's an early career development grant. It lasts five years. Um, and those funds are mainly for, uh, you know, salaries for student research assistants. And also the the large bulk of it is for actually computation time. Wow. Uh, and uh, Eric Talvady, uh, Associate Professor of Computer, Computer Science at F&M, thank you very much for being with us today. Thanks a lot. Hillary Clinton was in Harrisburg on Friday, and Donald Trump is at Cumberland Valley High School tonight. We'll have a report from both camps coming up on tomorrow's show.